Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Stargate Archives. After my little side journey down the history of Richard Dean Anderson's television appearances, we are back to Stargate, an episode of SG-1 chosen by my guest, Tim. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening, Tim. Sorry, kind of jumped on your cue there. You did. I? Not to worry. So, what episode have you picked? I've picked the tune from Season 5. Now, is that any... For any particular reason, or just because it's part of your rewatch? Sort of realised it was coming up in the rewatch. I think it's, it works good as... it's Essentially, it's a standalone episode. But at the same time, it introduces concepts that are going to become more of a feature of the show down the line. And plus, like I built it when I suggested it, it's science fiction and Indiana Jones rolled into one nice bundle. What's not to like? That's the thought they had for <laughs> the last Indiana Jones movie, wasn't it? Let's throw in some aliens. What could go wrong? don't remember there being aliens in The Last Crusade. That's <laughs> the last Indiana Jones film that I know. Well done. Yep, so we're going to be watching The Tomb, Season 5, Episode 8 of Stargate SG-1. The episode was written by Joseph Malozzi and Paul Mully and directed by Peter DeLuise. And it's an American premiere, August the 17th, 2001, and it appeared in the UK October the 24th, 2001. You will not be surprised that it got the Leo Award for Best Production Design for a Dramatic Series. That's mainly for the caverns under the ziggurat, which is mentioned in the commentary. The story was actually first pimped for season four. It was turned down because simply the budget was too high, but when they had the attack that they had to tear down, they turned it into this cave system. Spent a lot of money on it and looks fantastic. I was about to say, it shows. When you've got actors running around in a dark corridor, you know, all the variable lighting effects going on, and it looks good. For a 2001 TV episode, it looks fantastic. Let's not dwell on the whole 2001 thing, because <laughs> yikes, that's mildly terrifying. Yeah, so I sat at home watching this live. <laughs> yeah, I sat there thinking, yeah, I, I remember watching this when it aired on Sky One. Oof. Right then, the tomb. This opens up with the MGM lion. I certainly missed that when it got stopped being shown on the, the episodes. It was just sort of part of SG-1, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It's, it's like the uh, the Fox fanfare for Star Wars. It, it yeah, was literally that's... part of the movie. Do you think now the whole... Sorry, tangent. It's me. What did you expect? Do you think now the Disney-Fox deal's gone through... You think that means we might get it back at the beginning of episode nine? Or is that just wishful thinking on my part? I would be surprised, but it would be very surprising if they did it. Can you imagine, though, if they kept that quiet? You're sat in the cinema and all of a sudden that kicks in. Yeah. Start as you think you're having a stroke and you were sat in the wrong film. <laughs> but... It would automatically give the movie bonus points, mm. no matter what happened. Which, let's face it, as a franchise, they could use all the bonus points they can get at the minute. Well, try to put The Last Jedi back in the cinema for a couple of weeks with the Fox intro and see what happens. All of a sudden, everybody comes out, that's a great movie. Yeah, see, all it needed was the right intro. Uh, I think The Last Jedi needs more help than an intro. One of the downsides of continuing a franchise with uh, new writers, new producers, 
you're not guaranteed to be able to hit the old magic or encourage enough new fans to buy into what you're offering. It doesn't always work. No, I mean, that's the things. everything's got a shelf life. The original trilogy works as a product of its time. They tried to recapture it with the prequel trilogy, and, you know, there will be some people for whom that is their Star Wars because it will be what they saw as a cinema growing up. But safe to say that lightning really didn't strike twice. No. So trying it again with a new trilogy was ballsy or desperate, depending on how you want to look at it. Well, they played it safe by basically remaking the first movie again. <laughs> the Force Awakens, very entertaining science fiction movie, but you're watching it thinking, well, yeah, I've seen that before, I've seen that before, yeah, I know what's going to happen now, because it happened in the other film. Yeah, there's some beats here that feel eerily familiar. <laughs> you could argue that, better safe than sorry, let's get one under our belt, then let's push it, and <laughs> oops. Did you notice, though, the same thing that I did, that you didn't get many people knocking The Force Awakens... No. You got some at the time. Nothing compared to the Backlash The Last Jedi got. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. Once then people st- once people started on the Backlash against The Last Jedi, more and more people then started taking shots at The Force Awakens. I was like, hang on, where were you two years ago? Is it like, have you literally only just seen the film? Or did you need someone bigger and braver to take shots at the new one before you would then throw something at the first one? Well, you get you get the same effect, but... In reverse, a movie that didn't get much critical or fan acclaim, suddenly five years down the road, it's the best thing since sliced bread. And everybody suddenly thinks, it is, it's brilliant. We never said anything bad about it. What are you on about? <laughs> yeah, we've always loved this movie. What are you talking about? <laughs> right then, back to the tomb. <laughs> we have just got past the MGM line. <laughs> okay, the episode opens up with some truly awful CGI. <laughs> Sorry, but it is. It, it's yeah. bad. Do you think a lot of the CGI money for this episode went in the set design? I'd imagine so. After, after they spent all that, you go, right, you've got $10. Knock us up, South American-looking city, please. Yeah. It's, I mean, the early SG-1s have always had a kind of shaky relationship with CGI. You only need to look at some of the Asgard walking to realise that, oof. <laughs> but this is, oof. Yeah, you've just got to... Okay, it's only on screen for a few seconds. Move along, move along. Yeah, you'd have been better with our map painting. And then you notice the little figures climbing the steps, and you go, oh, no. I do like the music, though. We get some panpipes, which is traditional for a Mayan or a Aztec pipe construct. I think it's one thing that SG-1 doesn't get enough credit for. I mean, sort of, obviously, yeah, sort of, your big, sort of the big theme tune, yeah. But it always seems to get the incidental music right as well. It's a damn shame we haven't had more music released, considering how much work Joel put into creating about, probably about 90, 95% of the music used on the franchise. Mm. There must be huge amounts. Somewhere in somebody's storage, I assume MGM have the rights to it, or maybe they subcontracted the music to a different publisher. But in the digital age, surely release it. You would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Right, we uh, get past the CGI and we move on to the sound stage. Incredibly evident that's where we are. Everything suddenly looks real. We're in some sort of antechamber just before the entrance to sealed pyramid. As Daniel says, ziggurat. Jack looks at him. It's a ziggurat. All of a sudden you realise, Daniel's got to be careful. Jack already looks like he wants to slap him. You kind of want to... Exp- I'm surprised you don't get either the line... One of the lines from Jack, either, what the hell's a ziggurat, or, what's the difference? Yeah. 
And the beautiful thing is, I think you can actually see... I think there's a deliberate choice in Richard Dean Anderson's acting here. I think you can almost you can almost kind of see the thought process in Jack's head where he's about to ask, what's the difference? And then you can see him putting the brake on because he's like, no, if I ask the question, I'm going to get an answer. It's yeah. going to be a long answer, and I'm probably not going to understand half of it. And you still won't be through the door, which is the important bit. Daniel's fascinated with the door. Lots of pictograms. This is going to be a little tricky. Which is a shame, because Daniel normally has no trouble with these things. But it's going to be kind of a, a plot point. For all the sort of similarities and obviously the friendship that's grown over the years, it's sort of the basic difference between Jack and Daniel. Daniel's the kid that you can leave the Christmas presents around the Christmas tree for a good couple of weeks beforehand. And he's happy to just look at them there. Yeah. Jack wants to open them straight away. Sam would look at them, but figure out what they are without even touching them. Yeah. And Tilk would go, what is Christmas? I don't understand, O'Neill. <laughs> Somebody's climbing down the chimney. <laughs> I'll take care of that. <laughs> That's me and that gun. If I say, I'll just come December 24th, I'll be sat at the fireplace, the Zat will be aimed. <laughs> He's only going to make that mistake once. Almost imagine that at some point, Tilk coming across a youngster, like that young girl he met in uh, Bain, mm. telling him about Father Christmas and, and take it, him taking it to heart. Yes. <laughs> And then hearing the story about Norad tracking the uh, sleigh at Christmas as well. <laughs> can they go up a few levels? Something fun going on. I can almost picture him come Christmas Eve, jumping in a 302, like, right, <laughs> this is the year. I'm having him. <laughs> uh, there's a Christmas special for you. OK, so uh, we get Daniel pointing out that this construct is about 3,000 years old. Oh, so uh, nobody's been around here for a while. And then the Russian cigarette packet is a bit of a mystery. What's going on here, then? Damn Russians. Yeah, littering. Bastards. <laughs> and we get the theme music. My DVD has the full uh, Egyptian intro still. I imagine at this time, if you were watching it via streaming, it'd be the syndicated intro. Yeah, that confused the hell out of me when I started getting SG-1 on, the, on video. Yeah. Because at this point, you'd watched, a couple of ep- you'd watched the episodes a couple of times. You think, I'm not going to get surprised by anything. Then all of a sudden, there's a different title sequence, and you're like, what? <laughs> Which, I'll be honest, I didn't like so much. There's something about the sort of, the sort of, the, the nice, for want of a better term, the majesty of the Egyptian one. Yeah. And yeah, I can see why I eventually move away from it, because we did get to the point with the Gould where the Egyptian influence has kind of gone now. Like, yeah, they're still flying around in ships that are giant pyramids, but we're taking influence from different areas now. I think basically the wider audience were more used to the new style opening credits. A good theme, a good introduction could sell the show to the casual viewer. I mean, even now there are some some shows I do enjoy the eight to nine second intro. You know, Just time to sit down, pick up your cup of tea and put it down again before the actual programme starts. Others... A minute, a minute and a half intro, something like Game of Thrones. I'll sit there and I'll listen to it because the music's so so good. Mm. It's like when you're binge-watching Deep Space Nine, you know, I always let the credits play. Always. Don't do that for all, every show I watch. No. Some title sequences you can skip through. Others, you're a heathen if you do. Uh, I think I've watched the Enterprise only credits once. <laughs> then never again. Yeah, Oof. Enterprise, what were you thinking? Okay, back to the episode. Stock footage of Cheyenne Mountain. We've got the uh, two soldiers walking across the road. How many times have we seen them over the years? 
they didn't get any residuals, I know that for sure. <laughs> Jumping into the briefing room, we get a mention that the Russian Stargate program was open for 37 days. So they didn't really get a long period of time before everything went kaput. When one of the first Stargate addresses you actually open leads to a planet, you know, a submerged Stargate, and you can't actually <laughs> shut the gate down. Yeah, that did cause a minor problem. I mean, to be honest, it is just literally a case of, you know, there but for the grace of God go we, because, yeah, the SGC opened the Stargate up to some fairly hairy situations, but we got lucky. The black hole planet wasn't like the third gate, we, the third time we opened the gate. Yeah, that would have put a crimp into things, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, you can imagine the general or the president saying, oh, that's it, shut the programme down. Yeah, this, no, we're not not a fan of this. No. Let's just hope the aliens don't work. Let's just hope Apophis doesn't work out where Earth is. Because <laughs> uh, this, no, not worth it. Yeah, fortunately, they didn't really have a reverse directory for Stargate. Imagine if the gates had a 1471. <laughs> oh, that would have changed many an episode, wouldn't it? Woo! Even when they actually wrote in the idea that the uh, DHD stores about 50 addresses locally, you know, which allowed them to push the plot along for some episodes when they didn't need that sort of uh, useful tool. Oh, the DHD is broken. The DHD is missing. The DHD crystal is damaged. Whatever it takes. Yes, I do like that. We've established that you can't do something. Until plot-wise, we really need to be able to do that. Okay, so now the DHD can do this. It's like, what, was there a system update? <laughs> yeah, it's like the uh, three-shot Zat gun rule, you know, after a few episodes, I realised, you know, this isn't a good idea, is it? No, it isn't. Shall we mention it ever again? No, we won't. Yeah, it's, I do sort of like how the whole third shot vaporises things. I don't actually think it makes it out of season two. I'm fairly certain we see Jack vaporise some crates in 1969, but after that... I haven't got the imagination to do what any of the TV writers and movie screenplay writers and all those that can actually pull this sort of thing out of uh, their imagination... And at the same time, I suppose that they can get so hooked on an idea that they don't see the bigger picture. Whereas fans, after they've watched an episode, think about it, then point out ten things which the writers never considered. Yeah. Like, how long between shots? Stunned yeah. once? Five minutes? Ten minutes? What, what, if, what if you accidentally get shot in the crossfire? Three so times? Is it only two shots from the same Zat gun? Would it count if you got shot a second time but by a different Zat? Lots of things to trip a writer over. And also just the little things like we don't introduce the Zat guns until the end of the first season. Okay, that makes sense why we've never had them. Why haven't we seen the Jafar have them before? Because all of a sudden they seem to become standard kit for the Jafar as well. It's almost like the miraculous shuttlecraft appearing on the original Enterprise. <laughs> Where's that been for the first season? It, it's flat pack. We just haven't got around to building it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look, you've seen how often things break in engineering. Scotty's been busy. Right, we hear that the Russian team may have been getting some orders from within Russian intelligence. This seems a little perplexing until, of course, point out that quite kind of happened with the NID. Yeah, we know. The SGC aren't immune to this sort of influence. And let's be honest, if the... I was going to say above board, but... You know, the air quote above board was taking hints and suggestions from Mayborn. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean... Good old Harry. And this is Mayborn before he was likeable. Yeah, this is traitor Harry. This is what I like to class as douchebag Mayborn. <laughs> the Mayborn you want to see O'Neill hit or shoot. I did have to raise an eyebrow as Dr. Britsky. 
I'm thinking, okay, so you want, you want to create a Russian-sounding name. It's got to end with ski. Who's another bad guy? The Brits. Ah, of course, they always play bad guys. Britski, that's it. It sounds something like off the young ones. Mm. And I also kind of like the fact when you're sort of looking at the file photos of the Russian team. Yes. I like the fact that one of them is Peter DeLuise. Commentary Track did actually name the, the other guys involved who were part of the production stuff as well, but... I mean, Peter stands out. He didn't get his uh, live-action cameo, but he's in the episode. Right, we jump to Daniel's lab. Him and Jack, well, they are having not a heated discussion, but a lively discussion about the merits of uh, Russia's involvement in the Stargate programme. As Daniel points out, the SGC have not exactly been totally forthcoming with sharing of information and technology, which they agreed to do. I love that sort of moment when, when O'Neill's like, you know, well, there's a deal. Well, yeah, they haven't exactly been keeping up their end. And Carter's like, have we? And then it was like, well, no. That's not the point. <laughs> yeah, but they're Russians and we're not. So. Yeah, exactly. There's them and there's us. We're S1. We know what we're doing. <laughs> this is the first time Marduk is mentioned as well. First mentioned in Thor's chariot as the goal that kidnapped Kendra. Or not yep. kidnapped her, but took her, enslaved her. So nice that they're using a system lord we're familiar with. Or at least can look on Wiki and think, ah, yes, I'm familiar with him. Well, yes, I think for all they've sort of mentioned that, you know, there are thousands of Goa walls, you know, it's not just the system laws. It is good that they do link it back so you do get names that crop up more often more often than others. Because to be honest, you would get, yes, obviously the system laws, but given that there are fewer system laws, you know, the ones below are going to be, surely they're going to get mentioned because surely they're going to be the tryhards. Yeah. It's like, notice me, notice me, I could be a system lord too. It's like, really? Could you? Yeah, have you got a good name? Have you got a good tailor? That's important. You've got to look the part. You've either got to look like a badass, or you've got to dress like you're a badass. Basically, he's wearing the most garish things possible <laughs> as a way of daring anyone to actually call you on it. That was the problem, I always thought. I mean, Apophis could be a real peacock when he wanted to be. Bolt? Always looked ridiculously smart. Always. Nerdy, again, she looked the part. You think Camulus, though, and not her, not her, 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 her. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, were the, what was the other one? Kronos. They tended to go more for the fair look, which I don't think ever worked. No. And you, bless him, just had the one outfit. But it was the right outfit, you know, the Emperor God. Yeah, that's true. Do you yep. think he had a wardrobe just completely full of it, or literally just the one outfit? <laughs> You're not going to call me on my B.O. You know, he just says, oh, I like that. I'll take a hundred of them. Yes, sir. No worries. You're the god. What you say goes. Yes, and then couldn't you just snap your fingers and execute him? Next. <laughs> you see this shiny hand device? Look at the middle. See how it glows. Go to the briefing room. The Russians are here complaining about the coffee. Colonel Zukov. Yeah, Zukov. It is Zukov, isn't it? For some reason, now I'm thinking Chekhov, that's Gary Chalk, isn't it? Mm. Sorry, I'm not going to criticise Russian names. We've got plenty of Smiths and Joneses. And Colonel Zukov, very friendly, more so than uh, the rest of his people, but looks to shake Jack's hands. And we've got a mutual acquaintance, uh, Svetlova Markov, Marina Sirtis, of course, from Watergate. Kind of derails Jack a bit. Yeah, that's, that was really confused there. It's like, hey, what? Who? Have I, did I fall asleep and miss something? <laughs> I think they make a mistake when uh, they hand the briefing over to Daniel. The Russians just aren't ready for this level of briefing. Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should have eased we should have eased into Daniel. Maybe have Hammond start things off 
Or do you think Hammond was like, no, I want to see what these Russians are made of? Yeah, I'm a bit tired. Let's throw him in at the deep end. Turn the lights down. Dr. Jackson, take it away. Yeah, my eyes are closed. I'm just resting. I can hear you. Carry on. Thank you, Galaxy Quest. Yeah, so he goes on about uh, a dig in Iraq where they find some evidence of some language and symbols, pictographs, and they show which are obviously a gate address, P2X338. Immediately, the reports and the artifacts were classified. The question is raised, well, how could they actually uh, recognise these symbols and point out, well, the Russians had the German DHD, which they secured after the war. This, you see, demolished rather quickly. I also love the fact that when Daniel's going through the history of what's happened to the DHD, and when he mentions it sort of being taken by the Red Army at the end of the war, you can see Zukov bristle just, just a little bit. I don't think it's an insult, but it's probably a term that they certainly wouldn't use for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, so he mentions the Eye of Tiamat. Can't help but think of a shampoo, but <laughs> again, Jack and Zukov, uh, there's going to be fun between those pair. See, the thing that becomes really apparent in the brief little scene when they're walking towards the gate and they're talking about guns yeah. is you sit there and you think, under different circumstances, they probably get on like a house on fire. But because you, it's something that they tap into every so often, it's Jack and strangers. Yes, it is. He ain't so hot with people he doesn't know. And nine times out of ten, when he's sort of saying to sort of Daniel and Carter earlier, that you know, when you go through the gate, you have to be able to rely on the people you're with to keep an eye on you. What he's basically saying is he doesn't give a crap about himself. It's the way O'Neill is. He's worried, are these people going to be able to look after my team if something happens to me. Because, you know, it's O'Neill. We know he's not going to think twice about throwing himself into insane danger because, you know, it's Jack O'Neill. We've, we've, we've seen God knows how many examples of this. We have, yeah. But it's always him jeopardising himself. He'll do whatever he has to to avoid putting the rest of the team in danger. I say, if you, if you manage to prove yourself to Jack, you're friends for life. Hmm. I did have to have a smile. He, he was having a, a bit of a dig going on about the uh, the Russian weapon being made in Yugoslavia. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, in the P90 of Belgium design, <laughs> it may be made under licence. Let's skip over this. That didn't happen. <laughs> it's embarrassing to everybody involved. <laughs> but yeah, so you prove yourself to Jack, you've pretty much made. Yep. We get to the gate room, we hear Walter's voice, which is a bit unusual because we later see that it's Albert dialing uh, controls. Possible continuity fluff there? Or do we think by the time the camera panned round, Walter had to step away for something? <laughs> that's it, he'd done his bit for the day. <laughs> I opened the gate, so <laughs> that's it, you were in charge now. See, the beautiful thing was, if this was 9 or 10, you could pass that off as Landry told him to go and get him a coffee or something. Yeah. Because that's the kind of thing Landry would do. Not so much with Hammond, though. No, Hammond will get his own coffee. Yeah. The two colonels have intense discussion about the chain of command. You can understand that Jack's got to take the lead. This is his operation. This is his home base. But you know there's going to be trouble down the line. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? And I guess ultimately as well, you can see where Zukov's coming from in that it's a joint... Op- it, yeah, it's, you know, it's a joint operation. We are both colonels. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, it is a rescue team. It's, you know, we're a rescue team for a missing Russian team. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, OK, you might both be colonels, but one of you has got a lot more off-world experience than the other. Your Stargate programme lasted only 
barely a month. <laughs> We've been doing this for four and a bit years and have prevented how many alien invasions? You know, just saying, maybe you, maybe you want to be following the lead of the guy whose name actually appears on the credits before the title of the show. You think in a real military situation, this would be ironed out so that everybody know exactly what role they were going to play. Hmm. But obviously we, we learn later in the episode that there are orders and then there are orders. Yes, and who would have, who would have thought that would possibly come into play? <laughs> right, we're on P2X338 under the ziggurat. The door is still closed. Daniel is having a lot of problems, even though he's got all the notes from the professor, who obviously got into the pyramid. I think that's the only thing. Even though he's having the problem, you kind of get the feeling that he's still enjoying himself. Oh, yeah, this is this is great fun for Daniel. He knows he'll figure it out eventually. It's that jigsaw puzzle that you're still looking for that one missing piece. Yeah, could move on and you could build something. You could do another section, but you want to finish that one little bit. Yeah. Jackie's getting impatient. The Russians are certainly getting impatient. C4 is mentioned. That puts the wind up Daniel. He starts describing... The actual pictographs mean this is a creation myth where Marduk created the world by slaying a bloody great sky dragon or something. It's when Valerian or whatever his name is will say, well, how's that relevant? You almost want Daniel to go, I'm glad you asked. Because this lot, don't ask me that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you, new guy. Fresh blood. Way. <laughs> but it's just the way you thought, you know, you said that an hour ago. Well, do you want to try... Carter, C4. Yes. I mean, where would the SGC be? There probably wouldn't be an SGC without C4 because it basically stopped Apophis blowing them up. It did, even on a 24-hour timer, because they've got plenty of time. Yes, I love that. 24 hours? I thought we were further away from Earth. <laughs> Till gave me duff information about how fast this thing goes. Why are you picking on me? Daniel explains the creation myth. He uh, presses each of the symbols in turn, pointing out that Priest would understand the sequence. They'd recognise the fact that the pictographs are in the wrong order. The door opens, they enter the ziggurat, and immediately they split up, because that is the sensible thing to do when you're in an unknown, dark, mysterious, potentially dangerous situation. I love the theories like, we'll split up. OK, but Kilk goes with you. For your protection. <laughs> well, okay, then you can have this random guy for the exact same reason. Be like, really? How much experience does he have with the ghoul? Because my theory of giving you Tilk for your protection kind of works. Because, you know, he knows about the ghoul. And he's Tilk. What does your Russian man know? Apart from the fact a little bit later we discover he thinks he's He-Man. <laughs> it isn't long before they find the first body. Looks a disturbing skeleton. And you go, well, well that looks a bit weird, doesn't it? Funny colour, that is. Until uh, Sam gets down and points out that, well, no, it's not desiccated. It's been eaten. Ew. <laughs> oh, that ain't good. It's not good at all. I do love it when you, when you get the Russian guy go, Bozhe moi. And Daniel's just like, you didn't say that again. That's funny, because Chekhov says that a lot in <laughs> Star Trek. Say it again. Do it. Please. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just you know, the whole being eaten thing isn't... It's not a pleasant thought. But hold on to that concept, because it'll get a lot creepier. It will, yeah. The other team, they discover the sarcophagus. Surprisingly, look, it looks like a very vintage model. Uh, none of the gold fancy jewels or anything that you see on, you know, something like from Hathor or Apophis. 
don't know if it's a different model or maybe it's just worn out. Maybe that was sort of, you know, because he's not a system lord, he hasn't maybe got the funds. So maybe he can't get one of the Swiss gold ones. <laughs> no. He has to get a more sort of factory model. Uh, it could be, yeah. None of the extras, he just had to make do. Uh, Tilk, of course, warns Zukov. Zukov's having nothing of it. And then he steps on a stone, which goes click. Uh, the building starts rumbling, dust starts pouring down. Panic, panic, panic. Run for your lives. This is a sequence where you can see where the money was spent. Yes. You can tell that not only a lot of money went into the set, but you can actually tell a lot of care and attention went into it. Because at no point does it look like we're running around polystyrene. For example, they said in the commentary part of the safety meeting they had was not getting lost on the set because it was that big. You look down, you're running in the dark, you will get lost. The only real way to tell where you were is to look up into the lighting gantry, which gives you a good idea where you are within the studio itself. Which in itself is kind of impressive when you stop and think, hang on, it, the set is big enough to get lost in. Yeah. Wow. That's a big set. I mean, that's not your traditional sci fi fare. You know, it looks like we've been walking for a long, long time, but really we've just been walking down the same corridor all the time. Yeah. Just you don't notice we're basically going in a circle. I mean, the, the great thing was they had two teams, so you could get often get the same team running down the same corridor, but if you throw a bit of dust here, a bit of dust there between shots, it looks like a different corridor. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the steady cam work, the lighting in particular was fantastic. You got an incredible sense of danger, Unfortunately, Marchenko, he decides to open up a tenton door with his bare hands. Yeah. Brave, foolish, I'm not quite sure. You know, it's amazing how often those two concepts go hand in hand. True, that is true. I mean, anybody being sensible, out the door, radio, Stargate, reinforcements, save the day. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He could have just dived through that gap before it closed. Reached back in for his hat, which he dropped. Oh, yeah, you know, make, you know, go for the proper Indiana Jones. Like, ooh. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, dial back to Earth, get loads of Marines all sort through. Like you say, you're a fucking hero. Or you can try and wedge the door open with your body. <laughs> yeah, solid stone door. It probably is solid stone. Even if it isn't, it's probably got a metal inlay as well. Either way, gravity is pushing it down. There may even be actual mechanic pushing it down. Basically, what we're saying here is... Um, Ziggurat 1, Russians nil. Uh, yep, that's a safe bet. <laughs> Which, again, it's not entirely surprising because it's a completely different team and, hey, they're not even members of the SGC. We're going to call you Redshirt 1 and you Redshirt 2 and you Redshirt 3. We'd better keep one alive just so <laughs> we don't, you know. You need a witness, don't you? Yeah. You can't kill them all off. <laughs> but I love the fact they must have—they must have thought they were so safe because they had names. Oh yeah. I was like, oh, well, if they give me a name, then you know they're not going to give me a name just to kill me off. We basically have five main characters in the pilot. Don't expect that to last beyond the end of the second episode. You know, <laughs> we can really big up a character in one episode and then we'll kill them next week because shits and giggles. Why not? It's fun. Disco did it. Yeah, that is true. Disco did that big style. <laughs> right, the sarcophagus is... They actually investigate it, they realise it's been sealed from the outside, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. Got a blowtorch to uh, open it up. They find something a little unexpected. 
And be fair, the first time I watched it, I was not expecting to open up a gold sarcophagus and find Skeletor laying in there. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, in retrospect, it makes perfect sense, actually. You know, over the top, campy at times. Sod the O'Neill theory later down the line of Burns as Gould, Skeletor as Gould. <laughs> All that was missing was some sort of spring device that would actually lever him up as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know there's an outtake somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine that one of the prop guys in the sarcophagus ready just to push it off tilt screaming like a little girl <laughs> yeah that's like, that would be the thing and you know the setup for the prank would be bet we can make amanda tapping scream <laughs> and in reality she'd probably just wet herself laughing and it would be chris judge that has the shit fit <laughs> turns out that is marduk in the sarcophagus he has been eaten as well the skeleton's got the same marks as the russian Yes. Whatever at the Russians, at the System Lord as well. And then you sat there and it's like, but the sarcophagus would have tried to keep him alive. Ooh, that's And then Daniel's like, yeah, the process probably lasted a while. Yeah, you imagine that every time the creature got hungry, it just got that little bit ahead of the uh, rejuvenation process. Definitely not on my list of ways to go. <laughs> it's taken a long, long time. I mean, being eaten alive in itself, it's a definite no-no. But what we're essentially talking about is being eaten alive several times over. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> in the corridor, we, the viewer, get a look of a cocoon with something rather large wriggling about inside it. Brace yourself, we're going to get more of that later on in the episode. We get Sam talking about how limited they are on food and water. They're on a timetable, but uh, at this point they are not willing, or at least Jack isn't willing to uh, throw the C4 about, uh, blow a hole in a ziggurat. It's kind of proven that it's not exactly stable at the moment. Yeah, but I mean, given what's happened just by standing on one booby trap, and that's what it was designed to do. Perhaps high explosives, not the way forward. No. Perhaps this is one instance where, and I realise this goes against the grain for the SG-1 viewer, but perhaps E4 is not our friend. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they, they haven't really got anything more subtle. I suppose that's where Daniel comes in. Yes, last Daniel Jackson for subtle. Daniel is the feather of the SGZ. The uh, velvet glove, if you will. This is the point where Daniel actually uh, reveals that the priest turned on Marduk themselves because it was a right bastard by the sounds of it. Which, let's just analyse this concept. The Goa'uld in general are not nice people. No. But normally, their gods will let them get away with it. So when you consider the likes of Apophis, and, you know, they, they went to great lengths to say that Her Heruer was a bastard. Sokar? Nobody's uprising against them. Marduk was so bad that his own priests went, nah, nah, <laughs> tagging out on this one. How bad must he have been to be worse than a Goa'uld that was actually playing the devil? Yeah. Well, he must have been bad. Sam is with Tolenev. I also did like the let's fall into the sort of the standard sci-fi or horror trope of Let's put the two girls together. Yeah, you're almost asking for trouble, aren't you? Not only will we put the two girls together, they're going to be the first ones to come across Creature of the Week. I loved it. You hear the scuttling, and Tolinev says, uh, do you hear that? <laughs> and they look around, and then in the background, along the wall, you see this great big spider-like creature. 
<laughs> he can be behind you. The scuttling would have worked more effective had SG-1 not kind of set the bar too high for the, the scuttering sound effects, which, let's face it, will always go to the replicators. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, Tilk is a little too trusting. They find, him and Zukov find the remains of the first expedition. Tilk just has a quick look over it, doesn't really look for anything particular, because why? Not supposed to. Zukov, of course, finds the body of Britsky. He searches through his backpack, finds a journal, and finds the eye of Tiamat, which is some large, disc, incredibly gaudy-looking bauble. Three guesses which one of these things he does not own up to finding. <laughs> oh, I wonder. The thing yeah. I like about this is, originally, the whole split-up theory works, because we had four members of the SGC, we had four Russians. But once we're down to once we're down a Russian, we've got an odd number of people. And I love the fact that no one bats an eyelid, least of all Daniel, about Daniel just being on his own. He's used to it. I mean, I'd be like, um, seriously, you're leaving me with no one? Could I not have like just one person to stay here and watch my back? And by person, I preferably would like, I don't know, someone named Sam, Jack or Teal. He's doing important work. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, you're relying on me to find a way out of here. Kind of would like someone to keep me alive so I can find a way out of here because I'm not. I, you haven't turned me into an action hero yet. Well, on the way there, but still a ways to go. Yeah, you'll get there though. More scuttling. Then we hear the weapons fire. Jack's on the radio. Calls Daniel. Not me. That's what I love. You can <laughs> hear what is clearly machine gun fire. The first person I will check in with is the one person on this mission <laughs> not carrying a machine gun. What? They rendezvous with Sam and Tolenev. She's down injured. Some very nasty-looking burn marks on the side of her neck. And apparently the trigger on Sam's gun was stuck. Yes, she was seriously spraying down the corridor, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. It's almost as if you're thinking, hang on a minute, are you setting the scene for your story? Yes, it was this big. I yes. We shot it and... Oh, no. All that was missing was Schwarzenegger coming down and opening up as well. <laughs> if it bleeds. <laughs> I'm here! Come on, kill me! <laughs> when they get the opportunity to fire live ammunition on set, they take full advantage of it. The one I, the story I love, I think it's, I think it's the comment, I think it's one, of, I think it's the commentary for the warrior down that slightly later in the season, where they're sort of meeting the rebel Jafar army. Yeah. You've obviously got the scene where they think that the human weapons are inferior. Let's show them that they're not. And there's the story that there was the little kid on set that was begging to be present on set when the guns were being shot, then spends the whole time with his fing- with his fingers in his ears and his eyes closed. I know. <laughs> That's it, reality versus fantasy. And to be fair, he's kind of standing very loud. To- he's very close to the very loud guard. <laughs> the journal indicates that the odds are that Tolenev's going to die in about two hours. That's how long the venom takes to actually work out. Because up till this point, it was the one thing we were missing... We were trapped, we had some hideous creepy-crawly thing, but what we really need is a ticking clock. It makes you wonder, though, when was the uh, designated check-in time for the mission? The designated check-in time, it's one of those things that only kind of rears its head when it's needed for plot purpose. Yes, you would have thought, after an hour, Jack would have called back and says, look, we're probably going to blow it, blow an entrance into it, because you know, we're not getting anywhere. We'll call back in an hour. Do you think different SG teams have got different check-in times? I would imagine yes, depending upon the mission. The first scouting mission, then you check in when you arrive, you check in after an hour, 
you always leave one person at the gate if it's a multi-team mission. They've got to. It's got to be mission dependent. I'm sat there, I'm thinking, if you're General Hammond, SG random number, let's go 11. Don't check in after an hour. You probably shit yourself. Or you probably send the message down to SG-1, you better get yourselves prepped, I think you're going on a rescue mission. SG-1 don't seem to have that kind of, you know, report back in within an hour. You think it's like, look, we, we know you can handle yourselves. Just report back if anything major happens, like you're in danger of blowing up a planet, or, you know, <laughs> you've accidentally awoken an angry alien race who's going to try and enslave the universe, you know, something like that. But don't just report in for an hour's time to say the scenery's pretty, the folks are nice. You know, just have fun. But responsible fun. <laughs> the episode takes a bit of a downer now when he points out that the Russians all carry cyanide pills. Jack is not impressed. No. No, Jack's not... That, that, I mean, Jack, you know, Jack's not been happy for a lot of this episode. But up till that point, he's not been angry. No, because how many times have SG team members been held prisoner... And if the opportunity was there to kill themselves quickly, I won't say painlessly, because cyanide is not painless death. That's not a way you want to go, is it? No. But if you thought, it's me or it's Earth, how many times would SGT members have taken that option? Jack is probably alive because he didn't have that option. Mm. Especially when Ball gets a hold of him. The problem with Ball is he has a sarcophagus. Yeah, it kind of takes the punch out of you dramatic, oh, I'm just going to take this suicide pill, fuck you. Yeah, like a, a young Steve Rogers jumping on that grenade. <laughs> Big deal, son, put him in the sarcophagus. Yeah, see you in an hour. <laughs> I think we've got all the bits. <laughs> I think that's the thing, though. And I think it's at that point where sort of, you know, Jack makes it down, like, down the line later on. You know, we don't hand out cyanide pills and we don't leave men behind. The Russian mentality in this seems very much to be, you know, you do what needs to be done. And, you know, sacrifices are to be expected. Yeah, the state before everything. Whereas Jack's very much the kind of leader that he will do his damnedest to make sure everybody that steps through that gate from the SGC with him, he will do his damnedest to make sure he is bringing those same number of people back on their feet. I think that's his history in Black Ops, so more teams, you don't leave anybody behind because you cannot risk leaving any evidence behind. And also, I think there is that, I think also you've got the mentality with Jack as well that, you know, four of us are stepping through this gate. If we're going to be in the situation where not everyone is going back through this gate, I am going to do my damnedest to make sure it's three people going back through that gate and I'm the one who's not. Yeah. And I guess also that's the kind of, it's kind of what makes it work, but at the same time is probably a downside in that situation, is you kind of get the feeling that the Russians aren't friends with each other. Yeah, you don't get the impression that this team has been together in the field. This has just been put together on the fly, mm. perhaps with the people with the, the security clearance required for it. You know, you can't see them, sort of the theory from upgrades, going out to get steak. <laughs> no. Which, yeah, OK, having that bond obviously makes them more efficient as a team. But at the same time, that bond can also be a little bit of a problem when, oh dear, life or death situation. I could take this valuable intelligence back to Earth or this thing we absolutely need, or I could try and save my friends. Yeah, I can kind of see where maybe the whole professionalism thing might be a go-to. But when we're talking about characters in a TV show, fuck it, friendship, yay. <laughs> Quite right. We get the great line, there's no one left to rescue. Daniel just looks up. <laughs> you go, yeah, Daniel, we're with you, mate. 
<laughs> Almost hear him in his mind going, what about us? Yeah, but I don't know what your definition of needing rescuing is, Tilk, but um, <clears throat> we could really do with some help. We've got Sam and Tilk, they find a blood trail. Daniel hears some more scuttling with Major Valerian. Him of the complaining about the coffee. There's going to be trouble. Definitely going to be trouble now because they separate. That's never a good thing. You've, you're already separated into teams of two. I love it when Daniel, when Daniel sort of points out and is like, oh yeah, this is a great idea. You go on your own down the dark, scary corridor, leaving me on my own in the dark, scary room. Yeah, it's very Scooby-Doo, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Stop that, wait for me, I'm coming with you. Either way, there's a gold symbiote on the loose. You go off on your own. <laughs> that's not good. Then we get more Zukov and Jack. That's a running narrative through, a, through the episode. Always good. Sam and Tilk comparing the ziggurat to a maze. And then we get, well, the, the creature kind of just dropping in. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> like a big rubber chicken being dropped from the rafters. I'm glad they didn't have any screaming, you know, eek, or anything like that. Yeah. And it has to be said, when you actually... It's that age-old thing, what you can't see is always creepier. One of the reasons Alien works so well, because it makes you wait before you see the full thing. Yeah. So, you know, when we've only seen sort of like the, the sort of the, the limbs or very quickly moving, you don't get a proper chance to see it. It's creepier. When you get a proper look at it, it's basically just a lump. It is a very big rubber chicken with teeth. Gotta say, was expecting something slightly more impressive. When you saw that cocoon first, it definitely looked more spider-like. Mm. That didn't look like it was a creature that could scuttle up and down the walls, defying gravity. No, you would think gravity is, is not going to be this thing's friend. But I'm not going to criticise the episode too much. We don't see it very much. Uh, they do. They see a big wound on its neck. Tilk has a look at it. I actually correctly identifies the fact that they can't detect a symbiote, Sam, obviously, because of the little dalliance with Jolinar. It's when Tilk starts off poking it with the zap gun. <laughs> yeah, nothing in there. It's the knife out and stabs it in the neck. It's like, well, if it wasn't <laughs> dead before... Yeah, so uh, who's hungry? Start a little fire. Tilk's caught yeah. dinner. Word gets bred that the symbiote is out. Zukov and Jack, classic standoff. <laughs> classic. Facing each other, automatic weapons pointing at each other. Well, it's not me. Well, it's not me. Put your gun down. You put your gun down. It's, it's like that initial report Carter gives. Well, as you know, Gould can't infest Tilk because he's already got a larval Gould. And Tilk says, I'm okay. Basically means it could be any one of the four of you. Yeah. Oh, hey, look, we've got two people together who've basically spent the entire episode arguing. This will go well. Yeah, it didn't really take much to tip the balance between nearly open hostilities. I don't think Jack would have fired without proof. Zukov might have been tempted to if he'd have got the drop on Jack. I think Jack would have fired. You do? But not a kill shot. Ah, right, OK. He would have gone for some, He would have gone for a disabling shot, I think. Yeah, because why would you take a zap gun on this mission? Not even so much that. You know, we've got a P90. He's got kneecaps. If I shoot <laughs> him in the kneecap and he's a ghouled, the ghouled will fix the damage, but it's going to take a while and it'll hurt like hell. Yeah, he's good point. Ghouled. I'm sure good old Doc Frazier can get him fixed up. Yeah, it's, it's going to take a few weeks before we can get the symbiote out of you. While it's healing you, we'll just lock you up or sedate you. You'll be fine. Yes, you've been possessed by a ghoul, and that's a bad bit of luck got a plus side for you at the minute which means yeah i need capture but 
you know, fingers crossed, you might not even have a scar. <laughs> Would you care to swap sides? <laughs> Just asking. Now, since we've got you here, I mean, let's be brutally honest. You've spent the last, what, 4,000 years stuck in a ziggurat? Yeah, we've got beaches, nice mountains, fresh air. And, you know, let's face it, the ghouls can't thought that much of you, or they've probably come looking for you. <laughs> They'd be like, hey, where's Marduk? My guess is that he's a weird son of a bitch, that bloke is. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that they, I'm not saying that they didn't like you, but it's not like there's like a fleet of motherships on the planet trying to work out what's going on. Yeah, the change of ownership of your Jafar and your ships very quick. They didn't, they didn't wait. Yeah, so you know, clearly the Gould not your friends. The Gould aren't our friends. See where I'm going with this. Anyway, we get a shot of concrete, well, I suppose you could call it kind of a primitive safe, really. Obviously not primitive. Opens up, we see a hand device and Valerian picking it up. So that's what happened to him when he went searching for the scuffling noise. Yep, he followed the scuffling noise all the way to the safe. He just got lucky and he found a hand device. (laughs) Totally what happened. Right, Daniel is happily deciphering the text on a column and he gets surprised. Oh, not to go old. Daniel seems even more surprised. <laughs> and that's the thing, you kind of get the feeling that even with the impending death, you've left Daniel in a big room with lots of decipher. Yeah, and he was he was so engrossed in it, he didn't hear Tilk or Sam coming up behind him. He's probably the only person right now on this mission who's actually enjoying himself. He's found evidence of a ring transporter, so that's good. The ring thing in this one cracks me up. For starters, it's a Goa-walled facility. Odds are good there's going to be a ring transporter floating about somewhere. You know, they're pretty much standard kit. And then when Sam's like, well, okay, we'll let the colonel know. And they're like, no, well, you know, there's still a Gould out there. It's like, yeah, Daniel, Marduk is out there. It's Marduk Cigarette. He probably already knows he's got a ring transporter. You're not going to be giving him new information. You don't want the Gould to know that there's a ring transporter in the Gould's Daniel, really? Just think this through, mate. Yeah, that's like somebody breaking into your house and telling you, you you've got a half-open bottle of whiskey in your cupboard. You go, yeah, no, <laughs> but thanks anyway. You know, once he's not trapped in the sarcophagus, you know, getting the ring transporter, assuming he couldn't just walk out the front door, would probably have occurred to him anyway. Yes. He would know exactly where the ring transporter is and where the controls for it are. And then, if any of those priests are still alive, oh, we'll deal with it. They're them. in trouble. Yes, and their children, and children's children will be in trouble. And if it's any longer than that, well, I'll figure out a way to get my revenge. <laughs> then I'll do what every other Goa'uld that's been missing for several millennia has done. Apparently take over the operation and become the biggest badass going. Well, first off, where's Ra? Oh, he's dead, is he? Right. Right. Give me a dress book. Ra, <laughs> dead. Hathor, dead. Heroer, dead. Apophis. <laughs> We'll go dead, but with a question mark, because, you know, it's Apophis. We've danced this dance before. Yeah. Oh, Sokar came back and he's now dead. (laughs) You. Anubis hasn't been heard of for millennia, so, okay. A couple of episodes away from Anubis, so, you know. All Nerti is somewhere. Cronus, dead. Hey, maybe I could be a system lord now. There appears to be a few vacancies. There isn't many left. What the hell's been going on these last 4,000 years? Not one system lord died between 10,000 years ago and 6,000 years ago. <laughs> All of a sudden, the last five years, they might fly. Yeah, what's changed? And Jack steps forward. Or <laughs> oh, Daniel just puts his hand up in the background. Me. 
yeah, I kind of worked out, hello me, worked out how to work your Stargate, worked out how to work the one on Abydos without a DHD as well, you know, just going to just gonna throw that one out there, because all of a sudden that appeared in the show that wasn't there before. <laughs> Valerian walks into the room where Zukov and Jack are playing silly buggers. He reveals himself rather quickly. Spectacular use of technology, using the energy pulls from the hand device and then activating his shield to defend himself against Zukov. That is what you expect from a system lord. Yeah. Fast, decisive, dominating presence. Which at the same time makes it all the more impressive that the priests managed to get one over on him. Yeah, I think they, they did the old stabby in the backy. Or else... Sorry, look, we'll take care of things. You just have your nap in your sarcophagus. <laughs> yes. As soon as the doors are almost shut, we'll drop the thing in there. <laughs> gotcha. Almost imagine four or five of them jumping on top of it. Quick. <laughs> Whatever you're going to do, you know, a zat gun or something to, you know, actually melt it. This damn thing, quick. Yeah, it's opening. Bob, jump on here. Who's the biggest Jafar we've got? Right, you. Sit on this. Why am I doing that? Mardok's orders. Okay. <laughs> What's that I can hear? Nothing. I'm sure somebody's shouting. You can't hear a damn thing. Sounds like Marduk. Shut up! <laughs> Do this right, your first prime. Promise. Oh, we've got the gold melting as we speak. Ooh, ouch. You can just imagine that, can't you? Right, you're going to be first prime. Oh, brilliant. Promotion. You'll get maybe a pay raise. I mean, obviously. A bigger house. You know, house, status, prestige. You get to go on all the best missions. One thing. You know that. You know that tattoo on your forehead? Yeah. Okay, bear with us. Um, gonna cut it open, and we're gonna pour molten gold into the wound. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Did we mention a shiny new death glider? <laughs> Fully kitted out. What more could you ask? Yep. CD player, aircon, might even have room for a cup holder. You can have a cloak as well. Yeah, you know. Yeah, let's go back to the whole molten gold Open wound, forehead. What? Why? Couldn't you just get gold paint and paint over the black lines? <laughs> yeah, that'd work. All you got to do is touch it up every morning. Just let's be honest. The speed at which you could go through first prime, the gold paint might be a more might be a more cost efficient. It's like, yeah, we've lost another first prime. Oh, for God's sake. Okay, we're going to draft you in. Oh, one of them coming up. I've lost my emblem. What do you mean you've lost your emblem? I owe such and such so much. So well. Did you been playing cards again? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I had three aces. He had four kings. <laughs> what have I told you about hanging around with the Satesh Guard? They're no good. <laughs> they're rubbish, Jafar. Their helmets look stupid, but my God, they're good at cards. Right. Mardok, he's fully in control of Valerian now. He wants the Eye of Timot. Zukov admits that he had his own orders to secure that. He wasn't on a rescue mission. He had to get this device. Still not quite sure exactly what it does. We do learn a bit more about it when a certain system lord returns to the Milky Way. That's for later on in the series. Basically going to kill Jack. Zukov finally agrees he'll land it over because, you know, the system lord, Marduk, you know, he'll spare him if you give me what I want. Because you can trust him. Absolutely. I mean, you know. Yes. You can feel the sincerity. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is not a man who would lie. Credit to Zukov here. Yeah. Although I'm a little disappointed that Valerian didn't say, hang on a minute, I know what a grenade looks like. Yeah, it's like, hang on, I've got access to this guy's memories. Yeah. You know, I know that you were given secret orders. Do you not think I'm going to remember that that thing explodes? 
I do like the fact that when he threw it at him, he automatically caught him. Muscle memory, that's what you do. Somebody throws something at you, chances are, unless you know it's dangerous, know 100% you've got to get out of the way, you automatically try to catch it. Yeah, and then it's the traditional, I've caught it, I'm going to turn it over in my hand and I'm going to look at it. I'm going to realise what it is and I'm not going to throw it away. But you catch, yours. Truth be told, it was a small bang though. True, small bang, but, you know, let's bear in mind 4,000-year-old ziggurat. It's in better days. Oh, yes, it, it certainly did a lot of structural damage. The cave-in came down, Zukov, he got buried. Marduk, he got buried. Jack didn't, or at least not significant to the extent that he couldn't walk away. Bit dusty, but, you know. What do you say? Jeez. <laughs> uh, almost as if the writer's saying, OK, Richard, what do you think Jack should say at this point? I'll think of something. I've got, I've got this, don't worry. I've been playing this character for four years. I know him like that. And it doesn't come as any surprise that, well, Marduk survives. Yeah, it takes a little bit, takes a little bit more than a few boulders falling on your head to knock a ghoul bell. Yes, it does. Which is why I'm kind of surprised, to be honest, we never got on a comeback from Apophis. I spent the entirety of the rest of SG-1 waiting for him to come back as basically the Stargate equivalent of a Borg. Yeah. I genuinely thought we were going to get a cliffhanger on an episode where he's going to appear and he's going to be part man, part replicator. I suppose the fact that they doubled down on the fact that his ship was going in at terminal velocity towards the planet. So, look, he's going to die. Don't worry about it. He's going to die. I love it in the next episode, though, when they're still trying to convince Tilk and he's like, I am 100% that a pop... And then he sort of looks at own, looks at Jack, uh, Daniel and Carter is like, Okay, I'm 99% certain. <laughs> Each day goes by till it walks into a whiteboard and reduces the number by 1%. <laughs> Activated the ring transporter. Everything's look, looking good for the team. Tolinev is still alive, although they do have to get her back to the SGC quickly. Tolinev walks in. He is a mess. Blood everywhere, ripped uniform. It's a pity he wasn't screaming, I will get my revenge, because that's the look on his face. This is one pissed off system lord. Jack, smug as ever. Smugness, factor ten. I think this moment makes up for the fairly lacklustre reaction to the caving. Yeah. Marduk, when he walks into the room, cannot see what SG-1 can see. And that is lots and lots of C4, with about 9.7 seconds on the countdown. Oh yeah, she ain't giving it no 24 hours this time. No, no messing. In fact, how long does it take for the ring transporter to activate? Six seconds, right. Ten seconds for the timer. That'll do. There was a little bit of a little bit of margin for error, but let's not go crazy. It's just the nice sort of as the rings come down, it's that little smirk and the wave. Yes. And so they disintegrate, they get beamed away, and then we get a nice shot of the C4 exploding, flames engulfing the room, outline of uh, Valerian as fire consumes him. I think it's safe to say he's dead. Yeah, he's not coming back from that one. He ain't a poppist. Few people are. <laughs> what I love about the explosion scene is they take the time that you actually see the lantern that was there get knocked over in the flames. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, it's a completely pointless touch that they didn't need to do. <laughs> but at the same time, it's so incredibly stupid and awesome that they did. Well, then you get graphic artists who take pride in the work, who enjoy mm. you know, producing stuff for their show. They're not just on a salary working nine hours a day or whatever, or you know, working in a Chinese effects house, working 12 hours a day, and mm. willing to go that little extra step to make something look special. 
Right, we're back at the SGC in the briefing room. Colonel Chekhov is there. Polinev is there. She's all better. Interesting little tidbit. She is played by Jennifer Halley, who auditioned for the role of Jennifer Haley, the cadet in Prodigy. Did not know that she'd auditioned for that. She was the runner-up. A bit unusual that the character name's so similar. I don't know if that was done after the fact that they liked the name of the actress, so they thought, we'll use that for the character. Like, look, we didn't think you were good enough for the part, but <laughs> bear with us. What if we kind of name the character after? We'll bring board next season? Yeah? You call that? Yeah, it must have been. Not quite as big a role, but to be honest, she looks a bit too old for a cadet role anyway, yeah. even if it was a few years ago. Certainly she would have been convincing as an Air Force cadet. Colonel Chekhov, Gary Chalk, knocking it out of the park, once again, taking no nonsense from General Hammond or Jack. Not very happy that only one member of his team survived and all of SG-1 came back intact. Tolinov has corroborated everything that SG-1 have reported. <laughs> he likes it. Uh, we'll go home and we'll have a chat where she's under lesser influence. I love the fact that O'Neill's not even hiding the snark at this point. And she's like, oh yes, I'm sure you'll be able to get her to say, her to say whatever you want. And it's also one of those rare moments where... Hammond isn't bothering to rein him in? No. I imagine that the general is not happy that Zukov had secondary orders. Mm-hmm. Basically lied to the face. Yeah, orders that could have got SG-1 killed. Yes. I do love that moment of, it's such a subtle moment, you almost miss it. It's when Gary Chalk's giving it the great bit with, you know, and I'm sure you're also very upset, you know, we need to contest about the family, and it's like, I'm sure you're upset that the Eye of Tinnaman was destroyed as well. And it's that moment where you can actually, he's really surprised when Hammond's like, well, yeah, actually we are. It's like that, okay, I wasn't expecting you to say that. Well, maybe we can agree that everyone made mistakes. Yeah. Fairly certain the only mistake we made was um, taking you along in the first place. Well, there you go then. <laughs> One of the great face-saving manoeuvres. We all made mistakes. Let's admit that and move on. No one's come out of this looking perfect. <laughs> And don't worry, the report I write and give to my superiors will make you all look like war-mongering Westerners. Yes, exactly. You can't be trusted. Many episodes on, the fact that Colonel Chekhov, when he's talking to the Chinese representative, is saying, look, they pay us about $10 billion a year, they give us access to incredible technology, and they take all the risks. Yes. What a great deal. I think that's what I like about it, is the fact that it would have been really easy for Chekhov to be like a one-two-hit character. Yeah. And then just sort of falls to the wayside to be forgotten, like, say, Cassandra. I think they they basically got a good actor to play the part, and they realised, we can bring him back. You've got to wonder if that was the intent to bring him back all along, or if they just saw the performance and thought, do we see what this guy can do if we give the character a bit more to do? Yeah. Even when he's sort of there as a more regular, you, there's still that air of you don't know if you should entirely trust this guy. I like the fact, though, throughout this whole sequence, it's almost as if Jack is the general, and not Hammond. Mm -hmm. Because he's kind of leading the charge, almost making policy. And I think that's one of the things that works really well with Chekhov, is that he does not take O'Neill's shit. No, he's he's probably seen many officers of, of a similar calibre, although he probably hasn't suffered the, that level of insubordination. The relationship that General Hammond and Jack O'Neill have is probably a little unusual and takes some getting used to for people within the chain of command and outside from other military branches. I must say, it's that moment in Seth when they're talking to the DEA guy and he sort of looks at O'Neill being O'Neill and the guy just looks at Jacob and says, you have a very insubordinate subordinate. 
And Jake is just like that. He's not insubordinate to me. Just people such as yourself. There you go, then. That is one of the true gems in SG-1, is the development that you see Hammond get. Because to be fair, Hammond never really gets a lot to do. So the only way you can really develop his character is in how he interacts with the people around him. Yeah. And he does start off as very sort of, you know, stiff by the book. He's General West, isn't he, at the start? Little bit of give. You know, sort of that moment when they're getting ready to send the bomb back, the bomb through to Abydos. And he's like, well, you know, you've told, you've told us there's no one alive there, so there's absolutely no harm <laughs> in us sending the bomb, unless there's something you'd like to add to your report. And it's the look on his face that basically the line of dialogue that goes with it is, gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm bluffing you with a nuclear weapon, but... I got you, you smug <laughs> bastard, and I know it. <laughs> It's just that last, like, that last moment when sort of Shekhov's like, you know, I, I trust this incident won't harm our future participation. I was just like, yeah, I wouldn't count. I wouldn't count on future participation if I were you. And it's just the look on Chekhov's face. I would. Like, oh, or maybe maybe this is a guy not to fuck with. Yeah, you don't get to be a general in the Russian army without having exceptional military capabilities and political know-how. Yeah. That was very much the response of someone who's like, I've still got a few cards in my hand yet to play. Don't, 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 get, don't get too cocky. And that's where the episode ends. An enjoyable episode, really. Like you say, standalone, doesn't really affect much. Little tidbits that play out as the series goes on, but nothing that you definitely need to experience and nothing that is really going to ruin your enjoyment of anything that follows. I think it's one of the things that works in this season especially is it doesn't really... Even the standalone episodes, there's nothing there that feels too much like filler. It's like, yes, there's bottle shows that don't really affect anything, but there's nothing that you sit... There's nothing really that you sit there and you think, yeah, I'm going to skip this episode. With, for me, possibly the exception of Wormhole Extreme. Why? It's just something about it. I cannot get away with that episode. It bugs the crap out of me. Oh, OK. Which is a shame, because I liked Point of No Return. I thought that was a good idea, and I'm glad they revisited the character. But come on, for your 100th episode, and that's what you're going to give us? 100th episode's supposed to be big set pieces. A lot of the fan base wouldn't agree with you. Yeah, well, you know what? I take pride in that I've always kind of looked to see where the general population is going on something and go, <laughs> and you go, yeah, go left. I'll go this way. You're, you lot are going right. I'm just going to take that left path. But, you know, like, sort of, enemy at the gate in Atlantis. Let's fly Atlantis to Earth. Big set piece. That's what you do with a hundredth episode. Oh, you know, if you're going to end series, impressive way of doing it. Wormhole Extreme, on the other hand, it's got some fun character beats, and I do kind of, I do kind of like the actor that's playing the castle role, saying, "Well, if I'm out of phase, how come I'm not falling through the floor?" <laughs> because that's a question that's always bugged me. Yeah. And then to basically replay that card with the two hundredth episode, I thought was really cheeky. <laughs> Well, funnily enough, for the gatecast, I didn't get to do Wormhole Extreme or 200. I think 200 works a little bit better for me because you get some wonderfully self-aware lines of dialogue. Like when they're sort of commenting on the fact that Wormhole Extreme bombed, but they're making a film out of it. it and you just get Cam like, who would make a film out of a TV show that did this badly? And then you just get Tilk in the background. Allegedly, it performed well on DVD. Yeah, yeah they knew what they were doing there. I suppose it's just that point where the producers, the writers, 
have done so well for MGM and sci-fi, they've gone go nuts. You know what? Have fun with it. Yeah. We don't mind. We don't mind what you do. So if you ever wanted to do something a bit different, this is the week to do it. Thank God no one had the idea of doing a musical. <laughs> uh, it doesn't always work, does it? No. I mean, sometimes it does. And when it works, it works. When it doesn't work, oh boy, it's going to be painful. Okay then, that was The Tomb. Overall, very enjoyable episode of Stargate SG-1. Very disappointing to see so many Russians fall by the wayside. But this is a show about SG-1, not a Russian team. If the Russians survived, big question mark. Do we bring them back or do we just ignore them from now? But uh, I think this has set the scene that the Russians will not be playing a major part in uh, SEC operations. But they're not going away. Brace yourself or you will be seeing Colonel Chekhov again. Tim, thank you very much for joining me on this episode. Yes, all right. Thanks for having me. Back by popular on de- back by unpopular demand. <laughs> well, that's it. I've posted a couple of times. Anybody want to come on the podcast? And you hear cricket, so I'm coming through. Well, I'm going to ask to ask people then. I figure that just say to them, pick any episode you want. Doesn't matter. Your favourite episode, your episode you hate, or one that's got the greatest scene or the greatest line you like. I don't mind. Even if I do the same episode with two or three different people, I don't mind covered SG-1, Atlantis and Universe for the Gatecast. I've redone season one of SG-1, which that was the whole point of the Stargate archives to clean up the early Gatecast episodes, but they ended up being so bad I had to redo them all. And now just basically just doing whatever any any guest wants to do. That's fine by me. I was honest, my biggest problem was, okay, what episode? Being in the middle of a rewatch, there's a lot that's fresh in my mind. It's like, oh, that one's good. Oh, that one's good. Oh, I could do that one. Oh, what about that one? (laughs) Like, ah! well, like I say, we've got plenty to talk about. It's always surprising how long you can end up talking about a 42, 43-minute episode. Plus, I do naturally tend towards the digression. You're not the only one. <laughs> it's inherent in podcast. You will end up talking about things that have got nothing to do with your primary subject matter. Right then, you want to give your contact information and information on Uncharted Territories and partial nerdity? Yeah, you can find all, well, all both on... Uh, Podbean, there we go, that's the one because I don't do the technical side it just sort of, it washes over uh, you can find us on Twitter um, Uncharted Territories is there at UT underscore podcast and Partial Nerdity is, and I'm vamping here because it's completely gone from my brain, Partial underscore Nerdity I believe that sounds about right oh I'm a great ambassador aren't I yeah <laughs> Basically, Uncharted Territories is science fiction and many, many, many digressions with me and Stacey. And Partial Nerdity is pretty much anything goes. Yep. We do tend to fall back onto sort of comic book movies more often than not because they're kind of present at the minute. Yes, Partial underscore Nerdity. Hurrah! I did get it right. (laughs) Well done. Okay then, folks, thank you very much for joining us for a look at the tomb. If you want to be a guest on the show, feel free to get in touch. You can find us at stargatearchives.com. Email is stargatearchives at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and on Twitter we are at the Gatecast. We used to be on Google+, Plus, but that has gone bye-bye. <laughs> I don't have to worry about updating that every year, every day, so silver lining. Next time, I'm not sure. I have got a recording scheduled with Brad. We'll see what comes of that. But until then, thank you very much, Tim. 
been a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. I've been Mike. I'm Tim. Bye-bye. Bye.